0: All right. Welcome to the icosidodecahedron. Dodeca Doctrine. This is based on this little thing, which is technically called an Icosy Dodecahedron. And so I changed it around. I made this little model, not the actual plastic toy part, but all the guts. So we decided we would call it the icosidodecahedron. Dodeca Doctrine. And the whole premise of this little model here is to help us as Christians understand how to build doctrine. Most of you have seen this before, but we're going to advance it just a little bit tonight. Uh, given any doctrinal subject, the wiffle ball here in the middle of our Icosi doctrine, and I recognize if you're listening by podcast later, this makes no sense to you. But in the center of this giant geodesic shape is this wiffle ball suspended by shock cords in every direction. That wiffle ball represents whatever our doctrine is, healing, salvation, the local church, eschatology, demonology, grace, Old Testament theology, Levitical priesthood, you name it, there's not a doctrine we can't fit in there and prove it, the same point. Any doctrine we have, represented by the willful ball, is always going to be held in tension by all the sub-doctrines and interconnectedness of the subject. So, for instance, we like to use salvation because it's the easiest that we all understand. If this wiffle ball is represented by salvation, well, salvation isn't just salvation. There's so many aspects and facets to it that all of these shock cords represent how salvation is kept in a balanced tension. And so by that we mean if we were to follow this shock cord over here to this side of the Icosy dodecahedron or dodeca doctrine, we could say that part of salvation involves faith because you can't be saved without faith. And so we could come over here, and if we wanted to teach, we could teach a series on faith for salvation. But we can't stay on faith too long because other things will pull us back into tension and imbalance. So maybe antithetical, or the opposite of faith, might be works because faith without is dead. So then, as James says, Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And so we could emphasize salvation through works, but we can't pull on that string too long before faith on the other side keeps us balanced and hearkens us back. So then maybe another um, another facet of the doctrine might be grace because we're saved by grace through faith. So grace is critical. God's unmerited favor, God doing in and through us what we can't do ourselves. Heaven's help, however you want to define grace. And so we could emphasize the grace for salvation, but if we are not proper, we'll think that's all grace is. But there's more than just salvation grace. There's grace to speak. There's grace for hospitality. There's grace for ministry. There's the grace gifts of Romans chapter 12. So there's a whole lot to this grace thing. And then maybe salvation deals with being blood bought. And we could talk about the blood covenant, but we can't stay there too long. We'll get unbalanced. So I think you see how this goes. Now, uh, tonight I'm going to talk a little bit about prayer. And we need to understand that no matter where we're at in prayer or salvation or Pentecost, there's always some facet or some aspect of our doctrine that's probably a little lopsided or flat because we haven't developed that area yet. So I've, I've been in a text conversation the last day or two with one of our church members, and uh, they're struggling with this concept. They said, Pastor, not to be disrespectful, and they weren't at all. They said, I really struggle with the doctrine, this Pentecostal doctrine of declaration and confession, proclaiming. And I said, okay, how so? They said, well, everything I've gotten from God has been through submission and yielding to God. And so basically, I'm maybe putting a few words in their mouth. Everything I've received from God has been by yielding to Him, not standing and declaring and proclaiming. And I said, okay, well, here's the deal. It's not an exclusive either or, it's a both. Because if we take the subject of prayer, and let's say that's our wiffle ball here in the middle of our geodesic design, the subject of prayer has many, many facets. Faith, part of prayer is faith, so we could pull on faith in prayer. Part of Prayer, well, we could talk about the different types of prayer. We have intercessory prayer. and We have groanings and travailings in prayer. And we have the giving of thanks in prayer. And we have praying in the Spirit in prayer. And we have all sorts of supplications and uh, types of prayer. There's a lot to the subject of prayer. There's also yielding to God in prayer. Be still and know that He is God. But there's also a facet that says declaration and proclamation. So I've been meditating on this, so I... Can't look in my bag. But as I've meditated on my I Cozy Dodeca Doctrine, patent pending, God approved. Uh, it's not patent pending, but I think it's God approved. I learned that any one of these subjects here is a doctrine in and of itself, so we could blow it up and have a whole other subject over here. Let's say this is faith. Well, faith is attached to prayer, but faith is also attached to mission work. Faith is attached to casting out devils, we could do the same thing with maybe, if we spin it over here, this is our confession and proclamation part of prayer. So if we're going to, this is what we're going to do tonight. We're going to blow up the subject of confession and declaration. And over here, we have a thousand little tensions because faith and declaration is part of casting out devils. It's part of rebuking depression. It's part of commanding authority. It's part of being a human being. There's a whole lot to it. Any one of these we go to, we could come over here to intercessory prayer. We could blow this thing up. And then take this and teach on this for six months. You, you need to understand, in the end, all these doctrines are interconnected into a giant bore model of the atom. We have all this interconnected, like a giant crystal lattice. And that's why we never stop studying the Bible. Anytime you think you have a corner market on a doctrine, I guarantee you there's some facet you've not pulled on. Because if you did, you'd get over there and the Lord would just explode a whole other arena of the word of God and the kingdom to you. And you'd say, I'm an idiot. I am a moron. Wise people say the more they learn, the more they realize they know nothing. And so it's hard to compete with people who spend time in the Word looking for everything they don't know, rather than getting hunkered down on some pet doctrine. And everybody, if you're not careful, you're going to have a pet doctrine that you're willing to die on a mountain for. And the only mountain we die on is salvation through Christ alone, because it doesn't matter what your doctrine is. There's going to be something antithetical to it in the Scripture, which helps hold it in a perfect tension. Uh, a friend of mine and I were talking today about someone who, um, who, who recently passed away in sin. And uh, he said, well, I don't, e- I don't know if we can even say they went to heaven. And I totally understand where he's coming from. So I said, well, I think the last time I talked to them, they knew they were in sin. So I don't know how that sorts out in salvation. So that opens up a whole can. If we were to call this soteriology or salvation, if you die with willful known sin in your life, do you go to hell? Is that considered an open rebellion? Have you returned like a pig to your mire? Have you returned like a dog to your vomit? If you die eating dog vomit that the Lord delivered you from, have you denied Christ? Some might say, yeah, I could probably pull four verses and convince you. On the other hand, we might say the Lord is merciful and He knows those that are His. But then at the same time, another Baptist might say, but if they're licking up their own vomit, were they ever born again to begin with? So there's there's a lot of different ways we can pull these doctrines. And ultimately, in the end, we just say, serve God, look forward to His appearing, and you won't backslide. But part of the salvation doctrine is the ability to fall away. There is this ability to deny Christ. There's this string that says we can apostatize. There's this string that says that there's a great falling away. There's a string that says you can depart from the faith. There's a string that says that they are appointed under wrath. There's a string that says they've returned to the mire. There's a string that says, First Peter, it says it would be better had they never known the truth and to have known it and turned from it. But over here, it says that, that I won't lose any that the Lord has placed in my hand. Okay. Doesn't mean you can't jump out. So anyway, my point is, no matter what your doctrine is, there's way more facets than the one you've hunkered down on. Just as another example, uh, if we go with the doctrine of tongues here, which I have studied thoroughly, over 115 verses or so beginning in Isaiah that teach the doctrine of tongues, you talk to any non-tongue talker, they're going to emphasize this little guy right here. Can anybody guess what this little facet of tongues they're going to emphasize? Interpretation. There's no doctrine that says it's of the devil. They're going to emphasize three verses in First Corinthians that talk about tongues. They're going to ignore 117 other verses that talk about, how about 1 Corinthians 14? If any man speaketh in an unknown tongue, he speaketh not unto men, but unto God. If I'm not talking to men, but to God, why do I need an interpretation? How be it in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries? How about there's no example of tongues anywhere in Corinthians? So what they're doing is they're magnifying one string or one facet of the doctrine of tongues and ignoring 117 other verses, and therefore they will remain ignorant still. If you have 120 verses, which is roughly a ballpark, and three or four of them emphasize interpretation, why would you camp out on the four when the other 116 emphasize way more? Like, Do you know all the eight things the Bible says you can do in tongues? No, of course they don't because they don't study it. They just stomp their foot and say, where's the interpretation? What if the interpretation is, I don't need an interpretation? <laughs> all right. So coming back to our, our uh, fellow church members question, they said, all right, pastor, I just, I'm struggling with this concept of proclaiming and declaring. Everything I've received from God, I've received through submission and yielding. And we absolutely affirm that. There is a time to be still. There's a time to submit. There's a time to yield. And that might be when you're rebellious. That might be when you've been doing your own thing. That might be when you've been going your own way. That might be when you are, say, like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. He just has to give up and surrender because he's doing his own thing. But there is a time to no longer sit still. There's a time to be still, and there's a time to get up. Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time and a season for everything. And if you do the right thing at the wrong season, it's the wrong thing. You have to do the right thing in the right season. And any really good time in prayer will be both quiet and aggressive. It'll be both loud and quiet. What I notice in Pentecostal circles, there seems to be one setting in Pentecostal circles, loud and aggressive and chaotic. Very little sitting and being still and knowing that he's God. We have to be balanced like the model here shows us. And so there's a time to be quiet. There's a time to wait upon the Lord. There's a time to be still. There's a time where the Lord says, you're going the wrong way. Just yield to me. There's a time when you have full chaos and confusion and the Lord just wants you to be still and know that he's God. And the reason that does bring victory is because it is a moment of obedience. But just because we succeeded listening for the rustling of the mulberry bushes doesn't mean that's how we win the battle tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow, like David, we fetch a compass and come around a different way. Maybe the next day we take the whole army. Maybe we would get five smooth stones. When you study the life of David, he killed Philistines a lot of different ways. The only thing they all had in common was Philistines died and he listened to God. And we often get a little religious, thinking, well, I got victory three times by confessing and standing on one foot while holding my Bible in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's weird. And, well, I've only gotten victory by being still and just submitting. Okay, well, you're kind of telling off on yourself. Must be a lot of rebellion the Lord's trying to bleach out of you. The other concept, before we get into the Word, and look at the doctrine of confession and domain and authority, is Confession, domain, and authority takes work. And sometimes it's just easier to sleep and blame God instead of get up and do what God told you to do. Now, if you're a sovereignist, that is, a determinist, and you think God's going to do what God's going to do and you can't change him, then this doctrine is heresy to you because your doctrine is almost a cosmic in which case, why even pray? But that's not what the scripture teaches. That might be what a few points over here out of Romans 9 and maybe Ephesians 1 might teach you, maybe go back to the minor prophet or something. That might be two or three strings on the whole geodesic shape that is soteriology, but it isn't the totality of the scriptures. We are not determinists. That is, we don't believe everything is predetermined and God controls dust. I always do that. Was I determined to blow the wind to make the dust move to throw God off or did he predestine me to blow the wind to make the dust move? And that's what he wanted the dust to do. And if everything's predetermined, there can be no sin because sin is a violation of God's will and a determinist says everything's the will of God. It's almost circular reasoning Refusing to look up and see your father's right in front of you. And so, anyway, it can get a little weird sometimes. When we talk about the power of confession, we're talking about taking responsibility for what God has assigned to us. He commanded us in prayer, if you remember the Lord's Prayer, we're to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What if that never gets prayed? I would say most determinists have no prayer life worth writing home about because everything is just cosmic predestination. So what's the point of going to church? If I stay at home, I was predestined to. If I have an affair, I was predestined to. If I go to jail, I was predestined to. The wonderful thing about being a determinist is you're always in the will of God. It's borderline lunacy masquerading as deism. And deism isn't even divine. It's demonic. And so those are some of the most dogmacious people on the planet. You and I both know we have a free will. It was established in the garden. So when we talk about being still versus commanding and speaking and declaring, we have to understand that when we command, speak, and declare, we're taking responsibility. And not many folks want any of that today. It's evident through the victim mindset of our nation. It's evident through the entitlement mindset of our young people. It's evident through the socialization, socialism of our nations, that everybody's becoming more and more dependent and you can't even blame people for their own crimes now. Everybody blames somebody else. I'm in currently in police training uh, for the Citizens Academy as part of a potential chaplaincy program with our local police. And yesterday, I had to do the most horrific training yet. We had to sit through ICAC, which is Internet Crimes Against Children, child pornography. And we listened to the interrogation of a father who had been molesting his daughter. And it was graphic, and it was violent. Uh, I shouldn't say violent. It was vulgar, a lot of cussing, and the man broke. And then he said, you know, I, I always, I didn't want to be what my father was. I didn't want to be what my father was. And so he's basically saying he was a victim. And so when we get done, uh, one of the pastors asked the detective, is it true? She said, what? What he said about his father. And the detective said, I don't care. It doesn't change what he did. He's going to take responsibility for his crime and I'm putting him in prison. And I love that justice. I don't, she said, I don't care if it's true or not. She said, they all claim to be victims and it doesn't exempt you from your current responsibility. Amen. And I'm like, praise God for righteous detectives that put the pervs away. Amen. Amen. And so what we're seeing is this, this giant addiction to irresponsibility which might be why it's so popular to be a determinist because there is no responsibility on your life if everything's just predestined. And maybe that's why it's popular just to, if you're really submitting to God, though, uh, you're going to stand up and do something because he said, all power and authority has been given unto me now. Go, which means you have responsibility. So uh, not to to beat up our friend, but I'm trying to make a point doctrinally because if they're thinking it, somebody else is as well that there's a time to be still and to submit and wait on the Lord. There's a time to be quiet, to pray in his presence, then sit and say, here's your servant, Lord, speak to me. And then nine times out of 10, when the Lord speaks to you, it's a command which you must then obey, because the command is never to be still again. You just accomplished that. Now get up and go take responsibility. Take authority. Do whatever he told you to do. If you're waiting on him to speak to you, it's because you have some kind of problem in your way that needs to be dealt with. He's not going to do it for you, he's authorized you to do it. I'm reminded of those missionaries I met with, great people, Calvinists. And so we were, you know, I don't care. I don't, if they're preaching the gospel, I don't care if they're predetermined to get my money or not, we'll support them. And so I asked them, you know, I knew where they were going. And I said, uh, so they got any witchcraft there? Oh, yeah, yeah. We were going neck deep in witchcraft. And they knew the name of the deity that the the locals worship. I said, okay, what's your demonology? And they said, well, uh, what do you you mean? Well, it's like if I'd asked what is your soteriology, they could have told me five-point Calvinism. If I'd asked what's your eschatology, they could have told me pre-trib rapture. If I ask them what's your demonology, and they're like, "What, what do you mean? I know we have nothing. There is no doctrine there. I said, okay, what, what do you believe about demons? Oh, they're bad. Okay, so what are you going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do if you're awakened? Oh, what, I said, what do you, first question, what are you going to do if you're preaching and a demon manifests in your service? And they said, we're going to ask God for help. I said, eh, wrong. That's not how this works. I said, you've been given authority. You take authority over that demon manifesting in your service. Otherwise, you're going to lose the service and the people are going to think you're weak. Oh, uh-huh. I said, what are you going to do if you're awakened at five or four a.m. and you're drawn to this darkness in your baby's nursery, and you go in there and you walk in and you can perceive the presence of a demon and it's choking your child? What are you going to do? And they said, we're, we're going to pray and ask God for help. I said, aren't right, your baby's going to die in front of you? Because God is not going to help you, because He's already given you authority. The gospel says so. So your demonology should be you have authority over the enemy in the name of Jesus Christ. And so you bind it, rebuke it, curse it, laugh at it. Just get it out of there. But if you just sit there and say, do something, Lord. Do something, Lord. Do something, Lord. You're telling him there's nothing, there's something more for him to do that he didn't already accomplish on the Calvary's cross. And now you're waiting for a spiritual handout. You're waiting for spiritual welfare. You know, he told you and I, Go. You proclaim in my name. Go, you start a church in my name. Go, host a Bible study in my name. And do we do that with everything else? Oh, Lord, you do something. You host the Bible study. We understand we've already been given authority. Now, furthermore, to answer, and I already texted this answer back, I said, if you're trying to tell me the doctrine of proclamation and declaration and confession is done away with or it isn't biblical, then what is the foundation of your prayer life? Because you can't pray without proclaiming, declaring, and confessing. Because all prayer is, is you and I taking God's Word back to Him concerning an issue because His Word is the blueprint and we're praying your will be done on earth just like this Bible tells me it should be. So you and I are using the authorization we've been given to proclaim and declare things to line up. To me, this is as simple as as gravity, this is as simple as the water cycle. This is pretty simple spirituality, but it does shock me how many Christians really are, in one regard, jellyfish to the spirit realm, and they just have to be bumped and tossed and turned wherever the spirit realm wills them because they don't know how to swim against the flow and take authority over vain imaginations, over symptoms in their body, over the desire to quit, over insecurity, over shame, over depression, over discouragement. When you don't know your authority over that, you have to fall victim to it. And right now, please hear me, victimhood is a very popular spirit in our land. Everybody thinks they're a victim of something. And the greater the wound, the more special privileges and special authorization and special status you have. So the hearts of this nation, for the most part, are who's going to be the biggest victim. And I'm here to tell you, if you're born again, you're no victim. You've got heaven's authorization behind you to overcome whatever you think you're a victim of. Amen. And all I need to do is drag you with me somewhere to the third world, and you realize you've got nothing to complain about. Amen. And even if you've been through hell by the hands of a father that raped you or a brother that molested you, you can get the victory over that if you want to. Or you can tap into that spirit realm right now and be a victim the rest of your life and go nowhere for Christ and got there last year. So let's look real quick at this doctrine called confession. Uh, Let's start in um, Genesis 1. Jesus Christ said, Be like Me. He said, Be holy even as I am holy. Genesis chapter 1, let's look at this doctrine of confession. Verse 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Spirit of God's moving, nothing happening. Spirit of God is moving, nothing is happening. Spirit of God is moving, and nothing is happening. Not until God said, light be. And that gave the Spirit of God something to do. It's the first spiritual law set forth in the Bible. It's a giant principle that when there's darkness covering something, your life, there is also the Spirit of God moving upon it, doing nothing until you declare, let there be light. Let there be light to my understanding. Let there be light to my feet. Remember that psalm? Thy word is a light to my feet and a lamp to my path. Confess it. Turn that lamp on. Samuel says the wicked will remain silent in darkness. The more quiet you are, the darkness grows, and it's nobody's fault but your own. Amen. Your mouth is the hand crank generator that turns light on in your life, but you got to speak it. Yes. The word of God in your mind, the word of God in your heart, does you no good till it comes out of your mouth. That's why the the doctrine of determinism and victimhood is so popular because when Christians are convinced that they're victims, they don't ever speak the word. And uh, depression spreads through the church like a wildfire. And the pastor is limited because he doesn't have an army now. He has a uh, therapy clinic. Let me be very clear. You've been born again two or three years. There's no room for depression. There's no room for discouragement. You're either a soldier by now or you don't think you're ever going to get it. And this church is no therapy for folks who know better. We'll always have part of the church to bring along the new disciples. There'll always be a part of the church that is for the folks coming in who've never been taught what some of us have been taught for 40 years. There'll always be that. But when the bulk of the church is wounded and busted and damaged and we haven't figured out how to cry out to Jesus when he walks by, I'm sorry, blind Bartimaeus, you be quiet and you're going to stay blind the rest of your life. It's our job to open up our mouth and declare something. There's a time to be quiet, and there's a time to cry out to God and speak something. And if you're depressed and sorrowful, that's not a time to be quiet. When you're discouraged, that's a time to say, bless God, I'm born again. Bless God. The word of God's in my mouth. Hallelujah. I'm saved, full of the Holy Ghost. I can pray in tongues. I'm blood-bought, blood-washed. I can, I can confess a thing. I can declare a thing. It'll be established. When you're depressed, that's not the time to be still and know that He is God. That's the time to mount up with wings as eagles and go do something for Jesus. And it's pretty simple, but you just have to recognize when that heaviness rests upon you and your light starts to get dim. Because a lot of you still want it to take place in the prayer line. The problem is the prayer line doesn't go home with you. Right. Yeah. You go home with you. Yeah. And the word you've been taught goes home with you in your heart. And you're supposed to do something. Right. Yeah. I mean, even if all it is is take that little Bic lighter, the, the, the one little doctrine you grasp and just shake it, make sure oh, Yeah, there's a little bit of oil left in there. I hadn't skipped too many services this month, just a handful. And maybe have a little bit of light. Find something to set on fire. Amen. So when you have darkness in your life, the Holy Ghost is there too. But you have to speak to give Him something to do. You declare a word, it shall be established. We're just kind of waiting and just kind of waiting and... Oh, some way, somehow, some way, somehow. So, oh, oh, will you be healed? I don't have anybody. Maybe somebody will come and help me. Maybe, maybe tomorrow's my lucky day. Maybe the next guest minister will be my lucky day. When you have the word of God in your mouth, faith in your heart, breath in your lungs, honestly, figure out what's draining water out of your bucket, plug it, then fill yourself up what so we've been teaching. I need an army. I don't need a bunch of depressed Boy Scouts. Amen. Nobody will buy my cookies. Nobody will buy my Boy Scout cookies. I guess it's Girl Scouts. I don't need a bunch of Girl Scouts selling thin mints. <laughs> this is not a diabetic roll call. How about Job? Let's jump to Job real quick. There's a whole doctrine in the Old Testament called um, uh, blessing and cursing. And when you would bless somebody, you would declare the word of the Lord over them and it would come to pass. There's also a doctrine called cursing. And when you'd curse somebody, you would declare a curse upon them and it would come to pass. It's the foundation for modern witchcraft, actually ancient witchcraft. There's a place biblically to pronounce a curse or an imprecation from God as divine judgment on somebody, but you do it with your mouth. I really it bugs me that the witches know how to use their mouth better than the Christians do. The Christians are hung up on determinism and keserah on sovereignty while the witches bend uh, the will of the devils around the saints and the saints don't even know why they can't get ahead in life. The witches will sacrifice all sorts of things and pray against your family and mine to try to get something to happen, to try to spark something in the demon realm with their words, and you and I, Lord, if it be your will, Lord, if it be your will, Lord, you know, I don't study the Bible, so I don't know what your will is. I'm just an ignoramus, but, you know, I'm saved by grace. But, you know, Lord, if it be your will, if there be some way, somehow, some way, somehow, come near, come far, come now, come well, I don't know. Lord, if it be your will, let's go to the doctor. Well, was it his will or not? I don't know. I ain't heard. I don't think he talks anymore. So then you're a crazy idiot. Talk to somebody who's not there. Why pray if he doesn't answer? Well, it's therapeutic for my soul. Okay, so rub a bead. And if you're not praying with your mouth, you're not praying. You're having an internal conversation with somebody who doesn't answer, which makes you crazy material. I don't pray in my head. I pray with my mouth and my God answers me back. Whether through the scripture, whether through the inward knowing, whether through the word of knowledge, whether through correction from a sermon, he speaks to me because he's alive and so am I. Dead people don't talk. Maybe your God's dead because you're worshiping the wrong Jesus. That one of determinism. Not the Jesus of the Bible. Amen. Amen. Job 22, verse 27. Thou shalt make thy prayer unto him and he shall hear thee. And thou shalt pay thy vows. Thou shalt also sit and be still and wait upon the Lord, and he shall deliver thee. Now, there's a time for it, but not in this verse. You'll decree a thing. That's the same word as a king making a proclamation that everything must obey because of the sovereign authority of the king. Decree a thing and it shall be established unto thee, and the light shall shine upon your ways." So one of the ways we get light in our life is by opening our mouth and decreeing a thing. Now this doesn't work if you're lazy. If you're allergic to work, just go ahead and sit there and let the world take you where they want to take you, because you're going there anyway. But if you're willing to begin to build a momentum by daily speaking the word, daily confessing the word, daily quoting scripture, daily speaking scripture to the problems at hand, the right scripture to the, the problem at hand, then you can begin to get light to manifest and shine upon your ways. The last thing you want to do when you're under attack is just be still and know that he's Lord. I already know he's Lord. I need direction. I need operation. I need plans. I need commands. Lord, just speak to me because whatever you tell me to do, it's going to work and it's going to get me out of here. And if in that moment he says, be still and I will answer you, then you be still. But even that's obedience. That's obedience. Amen. But our default setting ought to be the Word of God coming out of our mouth. The Word of God coming out of our mouth. The Word of God coming out of our mouth. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, yet early in the morning will I seek your face. I will enter your gates with thanksgiving and praise. I'll come into your courts with rejoicing. That ought to be your default setting, not lazy silence and, and reclining on your bed of spiritual comfort. We're living in last day's battle. Amen. We're living in last day's battle. And if you're a determinist, you're sunk and of no use to the kingdom right now. Can you imagine a soldier sitting behind an artillery, cannon, whatever they're called, and going, well, Lord, your will be done. And there's this giant gun. What caliber is that? 155, 155 millimeter. That's a big bullet. Explosive? Oh, Yeah. Have the tools right there. Got the coordinates. Get to dial it in. Got all these 155. How long are they about like that? It's a big bullet. Got them all stacked up on pallets all around you. Lord, if it be your will. Lord, your will be done. You know, Lord, I'm just going to trust you to kind of make that bullet land where it goes. I'm going to trust you to load that bullet. I'm going to trust you to pull the trigger on that bullet. I'm going to trust you to feed me dinner, too. I'm going to trust you to spoon feed it to me. I'm going to trust you to help me use the bathroom later. At some point, moron, you have to do something. How about this verse? The horse and chariot are prepared for the day of battle, which means you get your butt out of bed and do something. But, victories of the Lord. So that means you got to train and breed horses. Then you got to design and test chariots. Then you got to put the two together, make sure the horse doesn't mind being dragged by something or dragging something. Then you got to train a guy to get in the chariot and train him how to steer it and then shoot bows and arrows from it. That's a lot of work just for God to show up. I'm telling you, some of the modern doctrine is beyond lunacy. It's a mockery and we pass it off as divine, we pass it off as holy, we pass it off as oh, so sovereign God. Do you even know what the word sovereign means? A sovereign is someone with authority over a domain. Does the Lord have sovereignty over the whorehouse? Is the Lord sovereign over the abortion clinic? And be careful how you answer. Because the the lunacy of the sovereignist mind is, well. He has to be in charge of everything or he's not God. That's where you don't understand authority and domain. Amen. Are you telling me he's in charge of every abortion? Is he sovereign over gay porn studios? Is he allowed to operate there? Is he in charge of every act of sodomy, every consumption of sodomy? Is he in charge of all the child porn sites? Is he sovereign there? A sovereign is someone who has extreme supreme authority over territory. you got to be very careful because you might start committing heresy in your defense of what you think is right doctrine. Be careful what you blame God for. I have never met a Calvinist with sound demonology. Because then again, they don't know how to cast the devil out. They wouldn't know what to do if one showed up. Yes, it would tear them apart like the sudden sons of Stephen. They'd say, whew, glad that's over. and they didn't even have to submit to any of it. So, Job 22, decree a thing. It'll be established unto thee, and the light shall shine upon thy ways. How about Proverbs? Let's run through a bunch of Proverbs that talk about the mouth real quick. You know Proverbs is the book of wisdom. You don't denounce Proverbs, do you? No, of course not. It's the book of wisdom. It's inspired of God. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11. The mouth of a righteous man is a well of life, so sit back and do nothing. The well of a... The mouth of a righteous man is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. Proverbs 10:11. Proverbs 10:32. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked speaketh frowardness. So it does come back to what your mouth is saying. What about Proverbs 11:11? By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but the, it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. Mouths have ability to promote cities or destroy them. That is total proclamation, confession, and declaration. It's a supernatural ability. There is a doctrine of blessing that you should go study out in the Old Testament. There are laws in the book of Numbers about blessing and cursing and making vows. You can bless a city or you can curse it. You can bless your home or you can curse it. We've so cheapened it by saying, God bless you. We don't even know what that means anymore. It's just a generic greeting. It's the same principles the voodoo, witchcraft, juju mamas work on. They declare a thing and the demons bring it to pass. But that was established by God when he declared a thing and his Holy Ghost brought it to pass. We're co-laborers with God or we're co-laborers with Satan. It's up to you. You pick the co-laborer. Proverbs 12, 13. The wicked is snared by the transgression of his lips, but the just shall come out of his out of trouble. So you can snare yourself by the words of your lips. That's how powerful your mouth is. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 2. And 3, a man shall eat good by the fruit of his mouth, but the soul of the transgressor shall eat violence. He that keeps his mouth keeps his life. Oh, so you got to be careful what you say with your mouth. What happens if you don't? I once went through the book of Proverbs, and I think there's it's either between, it's 15 to 25. I want to say 17. There's 17 verses throughout Proverbs. We'll say roughly 20. Somebody go study and they'll try to shoot me down for a number that's off by an order of magnitude or less than. I don't care. The point is there's, we'll say 20 verses in Proverbs that tell you how to lengthen your life or shorten it because it's totally in our hands. We can lengthen it or shorten it. Proverbs tells us how to do both. A lot of it's tied to what you say, not even to what you eat. He that keeps his mouth keeps his life, but he that opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Look at Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So that lets us know the tongue does have power. Power for death, power for life. The New Testament even gives us permission to deliver a fornicator, an unrepentant fornicator. The New Testament gives us authority to declare and deliver an unrepentant fornicator to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Think about the severity of that. That as a church, should the Lord tell us to, there's biblical New Testament grace-filled principle or precedent to, Let's say Gertie is in fornication and adultery. He refuses to repent. We have permission to stand him up publicly and proclaim to the spirit realm, Lord, we give Gertie over to Satan. Satan, come have him. He's no longer under our protection. You may destroy his flesh that he would die early that we might see him in heaven and his spirit remain saved. I never heard a determinist teach that. But Paul did. Remember that guy? That grace guy. An unrepentant fornicator is condemned to an early death that he might make heaven. Fit that in your soteriology. That's one of those lesser known strings nobody wants to pull on, much less publicly do. (laughs) Yeah. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Let's look at Matthew chapter 8. Let's jump to the New Testament. There's way more scriptures than what we're going to cover tonight. There is a place to be still and know that He is God, but you will not finish your race being still and quiet. There is a place in life to sleep and get rest. Six hours a night, maybe seven. You don't need 10 to 15 unless you've been really sick and you need the rest. There's a place in life to sleep. But if you sleep 24 hours a day, you're going to develop bed sores, gangrene, and die. We understand everything must be in moderation and according to the season. There might be seasons where you only sleep four or five hours a night. Some of you college kids, you're in a season where you sleep 15 hours a night. I don't know what's wrong with you. You're going to ruin your life. Amen. Matthew 8, 16 When the evening was come, they brought unto Jesus many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Jesus Christ cast out devils with his word. Do you think his word was rest, be still? Or do you think his word was a bit more aggressive like, come out, go in Jesus' name. Hold your peace and come out. It was aggressive. It was a proclamation, a confession, a declaration. A demon didn't manifest and he'd say, hold on, let me be still and know that he's God and just wait on the Lord to see what he'd have me do. Because <laughs> that's how I've won so many battles. never did a demon manifest or a sick person come to him and he say, well, let me pray and see what the will of my father is because I don't really know what to do here. Which is how most Christians address sickness. Well, let me pray and see if it's God's will. You're a moron, an ignoramus, and you're going to die sick. For those of us that know the doctrine of healing because we've studied the Icosi Dodeca doctrine from Genesis all the way to the Revelation... We know that we don't have to pray about healing. We just pray for it. And along the way, the Lord shows us, tweak this, tweak that, forgive this person, give that offering, put this down, don't eat that, go see your doctor, do what he tells you, or wait for the prayer line, I'm going to heal you supernaturally before you realize. this. never a question for us. When you have to stop and ask the question, you're probably already pre-defeated. Jesus cast out demons with his word, and then we have the same authority. I've never wondered what to do about a demon. The only thing I've ever wondered is, what's your name and how did you get in this person? Because I thought this was a spirit-filled brother of mine. Or many times they lay hands on our church family to stand in front of them and know by the word of knowledge they have a demon. I think, where'd you get this guy between the last prayer line and this one? Because you didn't have him last time. And lay a hand on him and watch the demon go without even having to say too much other than peace or be still or rest, go. You don't have to wonder what to do with devils. If you're still confused about it, I don't know. You probably haven't come to this church long. It's pretty clear. Look at, uh, how about this? this verse we never covered, Mark eleven twenty two. 22. We haven't taught that verse. It used to be taught every service in good Pentecostal circles. You cannot maintain hot faith without confessing. If if this ball here in the center of our Icosi, Dodeca doctrine is faith, one element of faith is action, one element of faith is works, one element of faith is hearing the word, and a critical element of faith is confession. Many of the scriptures where the Lord Jesus is teaching his people faith, it's always tied to confession. And confession is perhaps the number one way we release our faith and manifest it. If you don't know whether that demon should go out of your house or not, you're not going to say anything about it. But when you know he's trespassing and you can f- perceive his evil presence in your kitchen or he's come to visit you in the night season, you sit up straight away and you know, "Wait a minute. I know you, you're darkness. Get out of here in Jesus name." You don't even have honestly, you don't even have to be loud because you don't want to wake the rest of the family. You can just say, "I know you. Get out of here in Jesus name." I don't even give you the time of day. Just go. And go back to bed. Mark 11, verse 22, Jesus answering says unto them, Have faith in God. Okay, so what's that mean? Just believe? Just believe? How do you quantify believing? Is it like a mental thing? Do you grunt and we can tell you're believing? Do you just get really intent, fall asleep sitting up in my service and you're believing? What does believing look like? Verse 23, For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall be still and know that he is God. Not to pick on it, but there's an element to be still. That's not what we're talking about. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, because apparently that's the problem in your way, be thou removed, be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he says shall come to pass. He shall have whatever he says. Whatsoever things, you, uh, what thing, uh, therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, because you can't pray without saying. Prayer in your mind is not prayer. That's just thinking. Whatsoever things you desire when you say, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. And when you stand praying, or we would say when you stand saying, forgive if you have ought against any that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. So how do we deal with mountains? Do we recline and just wait on the Lord? Not unless you want to stay at the base of that mountain. How about Luke 17 real quick? We're building this doctrine of confession, declaration. Christians could have a lot more victory if they take their authority. I've been able to do some ride-alongs with the police lately, and it is so much fun to watch them whip around, turn on the lights, and pull somebody over to see them flex their authority. And it's, even, it's cool because in their cars, they're escalating degrees of authority. <laughs> From the taser that's always here, to the sidearm, and then every car you get in, there's an AR-15 right above your head. Some of them, we were in this one traffic stop, and we walked past the canine unit, and that dog went nuts. They have a couple dogs, a couple canines, and the officer I was with said, that's the worst dog. That dog would kill you. And he said, that dog would just flat kill you. So when you, the bullet goes too fast, you get the canine on him and let the canine do his thing, and then hope he remembers his training it's awesome to see. They just want, just, just respond to the blue lights. Yes, yes. But if you don't respond to that, then they'll turn on the, some of you call it a siren. Don't really show what that is. We call it, normal folks call it a siren. But if you're from Cookville, it's a siren. So you obey the siren. Then if that don't work, they get on top and they play the guitar. No, they don't. So then, then if that's not the case, then they escalate the authority. But what if they never use any of it? They're in dereliction of their duty. They'll lose their badge. Same with most Christians. They don't ever flex their authority. They're in dereliction of their duty. And the bad guys of the spirit realm run all over them. Amen. Luke 17, verse 5. The apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, be still and wait on me. (laughs) If you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say. There's saying again. So confession and declaration is a critical part of faith. If you had faith like a mustard seed, you'd say. And what would you speak to? You'd speak to the sycamine tree. Be thou plucked up by the root, be thou planted in the sea, and it would obey you. That's what you do. But which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will Say, Why would you say to your servant? Because they're under your feet and you control them. We're still talking about faith here. It's supposed to obey you. You can't exercise dominion without communication. If you're a boss, you can't command your employees without communication, whether verbal or written. Or maybe you have lights that go on because of... Maybe you're in a studio and lights indicate something, but communication must take place. If you're a parent, you cannot parent without words. So it goes from talking about speaking to a tree to now you're a servant with slaves under you. And you say unto one, uh, unto him by and by, when he's coming out from the field, go and sit down to meat. And will he not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. What's the point? You command things, and then you don't thank them for obeying you. They're designed to. You don't thank the demon for leaving. You don't thank the sickness for leaving. You don't thank the depression for leaving. You say, that's how it works. I command you come. I command you go. Everything's designed to obey us in line with the Word of God. Uh, one last verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Last verse here. Hopefully you're learning something. A little, I want to fire up your faith. The first place you should exercise your dominion is in between your ears, yes, sir. commanding your thoughts, your emotions, your, your insecurities, your depression, your excuses. I mean it when I said earlier, some of you, this is me pastoring now. I've been teaching and preaching. Now let me pastor. Some of you, your excuses have trained you. You played with them long enough. You flirted with them. You fed them. They grew. Now they, they own you. And so the devil has watched this. And he knows how to move you. He knows which excuses you'll obey. So he doesn't activate my excuse, if I have any. He doesn't activate Pastor Caleb's excuse, if he has any. He activates the one you have responded to. You're like an orca or a flipper at SeaWorld. You are just a fool for one of those little sardines. And you might be swimming to church, and all your little trainer... The enemy has to do is say and shake that little sardine and you won't go to church. You'll come to obey that little sardine called sickness, disease, headache, nausea, busy day, late night, runny nose. Your, Your excuse has trained you and it owns you. That'd be a good place to start your dominion training. Ask yourself what takes you out of the game and then do something about it. Everybody's different because everybody's responded to the, the sucker training of the enemy. I remember I've never been one to deal with sickness. I've always been very healthy. So sickness has never kicked me out of church. I'm so thankful that one of my disciples, Tony Marrable, taught me when I first came to this church 26, 27 years ago. He said, You don't skip church to study. Now, that's a hard word to hear when you're getting into college and you realize, holy smokes, they're expecting me to take notes and remember them. They don't even tell you what's on test unless they're just lame professors. This is big people land. I mean, nowadays in the university, you can just select your grade and get a Ph.D., I guess. I don't know. It's pretty lame. But back in my day, we got real education. There's no indoctrination. You You actually had to learn what you signed up for. And it wasn't like woke studies and oppressing. It was like, if it was English lit, you're going to learn some English lit. If it was technical writing, you're going to write some technical stuff. There was no politics or Marxism mixed in there making everybody feel good about their furriness. <laughs> we actually had to do homework when I had, was in engineering for a year and et cetera. So Tony said, I said, what, what, what do you mean? He said, here's what you do, boys, because he was talking to me and Jeff Harris and Brett and Fugit and Andrew. He said, you take your books at the beginning of the semester, you lay them on your bed And you command them to give up their knowledge. You have authority over those books. God's called you to college. This is the will of God for your life. You lay hands on those books. You command them. And you command that knowledge to come to you. And then you don't skip church to go study. You honor God and he'll make up the difference. That takes faith. I'm glad I was taught that in 95 and 96. And the funny thing is the harder my classes got, the higher my grades went. Because I got a momentum. I learned how this thing works. So maybe for some of you, it's school and you got to sort that out with God. I won't condemn you for for missing for a test, but that doesn't have to be your addiction. Wouldn't it be more glorious if you could come to church and make up on it on the back end? Second Corinthians chapter four, figure out what your excuse is and use your authority to kill it. And parents, don't let your children begin to develop one because it'll be really hard to break it. To some of you adults, you've been addicted for 20 years. Many Christians will go to heaven with their excuses still running their life. And those excuses, most of them were given to them by their parents who didn't disciple them. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. We have the same spirit of faith. Okay, so what's faith all about then? Paul, is it being still and knowing that he's God? According as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Oh, so what's faith do? It believes and speaks. It confesses. It declares. This is just one element of faith. Confession is also an element of prayer. Confession is also an element of Christian lifestyle. Confession is also an element of discipline. This is an aspect that overlaps in so many areas. That's why we should understand it. No wonder the enemy wants the church quiet. No wonder when you go to some prayer services, they say, church, let's pray. you got to be careful when you're visiting your in-laws' denominational church because you'll be ready to go, oh, Lord Jesus, oh, Lord. You'll be the only one talking. Church, let's bow our heads. And you go, "Oh, oh, oh, sorry, oh. I thought this church believed in prayer. I I didn't realize we believed in a moment of silence like the pagans. Because most churches, when you go to pray, it's a moment of silence. Nothing different between that and meditation we did in judo. We did judo meditation. Mr. Carter said, I want to close out every judo lesson with meditation. So we'd circle up. And I'd say, oh, no, we're not opening this can of worms. So we'd all meditate. I'd pray in tongues, real quiet, like, i bind you. I didn't know if I was binding anything. You're not coming in here. I'm in here. I got authority here. You can just stay out of this place. I'm going to win every one of these guys to Christ. You can go to hell, you little Buddhist devil. Yeah, well, we don't meditate. We pray in tongues. Sometimes Mr. Carter would fall asleep like some of you. Our knees would get to hurt. You think somebody's falling asleep here. We should be done by now. (laughs) Then Mr. Carter, bless his heart, he said, so what'd you guys meditate on? I was like, well, I'm not going to tell you. I was casting devils out of you guys. He said, so they're kind of going around. So Mr. Carter, just like us when we pray, he said, um, he said, you know, I I was just trying to clear my mind, just trying to clear my mind. Then I could hear the refrigerator running over there. Then I thought, how much is that costing me? Does Walmart have a cheaper refrigerator? Is that cheaper than what it's gonna cost me for that noisy thing to run over there? And before long, like us, his mind's all the way down this rabbit trail figuring out how to make dojo run better. Trying to be a Catholic Buddhist, which is what he claimed to be a <laughs> Buddhist Catholic. No, no, no. You gotta be careful when you go to that in law, outlaw's church or whatever, and they let's pray. Bow our heads. I'm so glad we can come here and pray loud Amen. if we want to. Rather than just kind of being a pushover. The enemy's a bully. Sometimes you got to stand up and push back. And he doesn't like to be pushed back. He was often pretty cowardly. A couple of weeks ago, we were working out in the morning. And uh, the folks were walking in the parking lot above where we work out at at Tech. And this guy is walking past with this girl. And he's cussing her. Like just vulgar cussing her. It's 6.30 in the morning. Just vulgar cussing her. She's just keeping her composure. She's just walking. You can tell they're druggies. And he's just this punk. He walks ahead of her, says, Don't follow me. Well, she's already walking that direction. So he comes back, gets in her face, cusses her. And I just, I just, it bugged me. So I went up. I went after him. Just started walking that direction. And I got, I don't know, from here to Eddie, maybe. And I said, I yelled at him, You got a problem, buddy? Bring it back. I'd been watching too many Navy SEALs shows that week. I really had. I was so jazzed. I was like, this dude's like 20. He's a druggie. There's no muscle on this guy. He might get one lick in, but judo will kick in. I said, bring it back. So he talks about I said, come back, boy. Come back, boy. He just kept on walking. Bully. Just treat the enemy that way. Watch some Navy SEAL movies and treat the enemy. (laughs) I was really hoping he was going to come back because it was going to be fun to see what went down. Because I know he didn't have any weapons. He's a druggie. He can't even hardly walk straight, you know? Can't even talk. He treats a woman like a dog. You know he's got issues. Why do we take so much from the enemy? We may not be determinist by our confession, but usually we are by our lifestyle. Well, if God wants to change it, he's going to change it. That, to me, is escapism and a shirking of responsibility. Amen. He's no respecter of persons, but we all have a different quality of life in here because we all serve God at different levels. And you can have as much of God as you want and you have as much of his blessing as you want or you can just wait for God to do something for you. Even Jesus looked at the man of the pool Bethesda in John 5 said, will you be healed or not? And he sounded like some of you. I don't have anybody to help me. It's just so hard. You know, I've been here a long time. And when the angel comes, because we know he's going to come, got nobody put me in the Lord. I didn't ask what your excuses were. How many times did we do that to the Lord? Oh, he doesn't ask for our excuses. But that's how you know it's your idol, because it's what comes out of you. He asks, will you be healed or not? And the mercy of God got that guy healed, but nobody else that day. And that's how it works sometimes. Let's bow our head. Father, I submit to your word. Your word is true. true. I am a liar. I I consent to your word. word. It is biblical truth. It is is eternal truth. And it changes facts. facts. Thank you for authority. Thank you for for dominion. Thank you, you, Father, for helping me. May May I hold fast the confession of my faith. Thank you for being the high priest of my confession. Thank you for the words of my mouth that have the power to change things. In Jesus' name, amen.